Last week, uh, we began to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and so we, uh, we opened with verses 1 through 3. We'll look today at verses 4 through 11. Last week was more of an introduction to uh, the book. If you want to listen on sermon audio to hear that, you can do that. But uh, we'll be, we'll, I'll begin with verse 1 again and then read through verse 11, but the sermon will be based on 4 through 11. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Thus ends the reading of the inspired and errant. Word of God, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a a revelation written in language that we can understand uh, so that we might know your will, uh, that we might believe it and do it. Uh, Lord, would you help us to understand the passage before us, uh, written in what to us is in, in an enigmatic form, yet, Lord, your spirit is our interpreter, so teach us today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we study the book of Ecclesiastes, you you need to know up front that Solomon, the author, is presenting the meaning of life uh, from two different points of view, and he begins in chapter 1 telling us that it's all vanity. That's, that's one point of view. That's true if you leave God out of the picture. So why, basically, you know, Solomon starts out presenting the view of an unbeliever, if you will. Why would he do that? Well, he's doing so to, to, to show his readers, to show us the logical consequences of such a worldview. If you leave God out, this is what you find. All is vanity. Uh, Human existence without God is utterly meaningless. The unbeliever, as Ephesians uh, 2 verse 12 says, that, that he is without hope, without God in the world. And yet, we know he's constantly looking for satisfaction. 
looking in all the wrong places, looking to the world for that satisfaction apart from God, but never finds it. Uh, And so there's no profit to anything the unbeliever does because in the end, uh, he or she would will lose their soul and be without God for all eternity. Well, Solomon continues on this somewhat depressing theme uh, of vanity or futility of all things, or all things are meaningless, as some translations put it. But today we, we see it, we see the vanity of this world in the various cycles of life and nature. And so the first thing that we'll look at, three different aspects of these cycles is the vanity of what I would call generational cycles. Verse 4 says, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. Well, first thing to consider is that uh, there have been basically in history uh, two views of time. Uh, one view of time, and it was held in the ancient uh, Near East, and it's still held by some people, but basically that time is cyclical. You have the cycles, and they repeat themselves uh, over and over, you know, whether it's the sun, the weather, or generations, as, as we're looking at now. Uh, history is cyclical, and, and uh, it repeats itself, and it's really headed nowhere. There's no purpose to it. It just goes around and comes around. And uh, that's, that's the view that Solomon is setting forth here in verses 4 through 11, this cyclical view of history. And, and the reality is that there are cycles. We know that. Uh, we don't deny that. Uh, the cycles that are mentioned here are, are actual things. But the biblical view of time and, and of history is different. Uh, it's linear. And... In other words, though the cycles of life occur, God is, uh, he is decreeing uh, these things. He is uh, moving them all toward a divinely appointed goal. History is headed somewhere. It's not meaningless. Uh, but as we look at the cyclical nature of life, it does, especially as Solomon is describing it, uh, it can become a bit weary worrying or dizzying to think about, uh, you know, think about the generations coming and going. I did a little research on statistics, and uh, this year in the world, uh, about 166,000 people will die every day. And on the other hand, about 367,000 people will be born Every day, so that's a net gain, right? At least this year, of about uh, 200,000 more people uh, per day that are born uh, than will die. But did you know, in the year they estimate, uh, in the year 2085, this will invert, and more people will die than are born, and our population will begin to go into decline. Uh, either way. Uh, generations come and generations go. Right? New ones are born and old ones uh, disappear. Uh, old babies are born and older folks die and then the generations are gone. I, in 1998, some of you probably know the name Tom Brokaw. Others of you would never wonder who that man is. Uh, 
But he released a book in 1998 titled The Greatest Generation. And this generation of Americans uh, was born between approximately between 1901 and 1924. And they came of age during the Great Depression that shaped them in, in the 1940s. And many of them fought in World War II. But the greatest generation was estimated to have about 63 million people. Well, uh, there aren't many of that generation left. You have to be 99 years or older, roughly, and still be living uh, to, to, to be part of that generation. So soon they will all be gone. N new generations have come. Uh, I'm a member of the baby boomers. Uh, we, too, are on the way out, but uh, I'm not there yet. Um, uh, maybe I'll have a few years left, but then there's the millennials, and then the latest one, uh, Generation Alpha, or Gen A. We had Gen Z, but now it's back to A. Uh, new generations come, older ones leave, and then Solomon says, but the earth remains. That's interesting. Uh, we have the coming and going of generations, and the earth Remaining, you know, it's interesting how new generations come up and they're so optimistic. We're going to change the world, change the world. Solomon says, you know, you're going to grow old too, and you're going to die, and the world's going to be pretty much unchanged. <laughs> it's going to stay the same, uh, and it's kind of kind of meaningless, or is it? Um, seems to be rather pointless. But Solomon is, has presented this view of generations coming and going from this under-the-sun perspective, this earth you know, perspective of this world. But what about the perspective of the one who is above the sun, uh, the one who rules and reigns above all things, the Most High God? So we do want to reflect. We don't want to... Uh, only reflect on the discouraging view of the under the sun. Let's let's flip it around now. Uh, what does the Most High God say about these things, the, this generational cycle in particular? Um, the first thing we need to do, of course, is to acknowledge that God's the creator of every new generation. Uh, every individual uh, is has been made in God's image, of course, also... Uh, in, is born in sin, and so that image is, is marred because of sin. And each person within that generation will die, if the Lord doesn't return, because the wages of sin is death. And we also know, uh, again, that there is an end goal here, an end in view, and that is it's appointed unto man to die once, and after that, the judgment. So history and your own life, my life, is headed somewhere it's headed to judgment. But from God's point of view, our lives have a beginning and an end and an eternal uh, existence. What we do in this life does matter. It's not meaningless because all of us, the Bible says, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So believers, of course, as Jesus says, will enter into the presence and glory of the Lord, the joy of the Lord when they die. And on the day of resurrection, our bodies will be raised and will be forever with the Lord. And so those who, who know Jesus Christ look at this gener these generational cycles 
differently than those in the world do, than Solomon is in these first few verses. But, uh, for example, Christian parents uh, look at the generations to come and the, the responsibility, the duty to pass on the faith to them. And, and of course, that they would do the same as they have children. And um, God's word encourages us to have that view. In Psalm 78, a wonderful psalm, he, he says, he begins the psalm, he says, I will utter dark sayings of old, which uh, we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So we were told by our fathers. And it says, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. So instead of the vanity of generational cycles, uh, this biblical worldview encourages us to look at future generations with the eyes of faith and hope, knowing that God's word can and will make a difference uh, in these generations. Our hope is found uh, in the words of Psalm 145, verse 4, that one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Praise the Lord. I see uh, generations here today uh, that have followed uh, this uh, path. I, 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 you know, there, there are some families sitting here today, and there's three generations for, uh, that are here in the service today. And then there's some families that are here, and there's four generations represented. Uh, and uh, babies are being born, praise the Lord, and raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's the hopeful view. That's the biblical view of the generational cycles. But next, let's look at what Solomon says. He sees uh, and expresses the vanity, secondly, of cycles in nature. And nature is, of course, when I use that term, uh, I'm talking about God's nature, God's creation. First, Solomon mentions the daily cycle of the sun. Verse 5, the sun also rises. And the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. I love that phrase, the sun also rises. It reminds me of the Hemingway novel, of course, uh, that he wrote by that title. Um, every 24 hours, without fail, the sun rises and sets. Well, we know what, you know, scientifically what it does. The earth just spins around, the sun stays still. But, but he's describing what we all see and what we, the language we still use today, the sunrise and the sunset. Uh, and, and so the sun is pictured as, as, as making its course, and it, and it rises, and it goes up, of course, and it comes down, and then during the night it's, it's hastening, it's running to get back to the starting place so it can come up again. And literally in Hebrew it pants like, like a man out of breath, you know, uh, when it runs all night to get back uh, so it can rise again. What a weary thing it is it seems to be for the sun to come up and down up and down over and over over you know up and down constantly on the moves and it, and it signifies really the, the restless uh, state of the world the busyness of life and you know the sun is always moving and yet still pretty much does the same thing every day right it's it's repetitive it's monotonous and that can be life uh, and then verse 6 describes the wind. The wind goes toward the south, turns to the north, it whirls around. The wind 
changes directions daily, and, and sometimes it has no direction at all. And uh, verse 7 brings us the example of the ever-flowing rivers. Uh, all the rivers run into the sea. Uh, it's like they're trying to fill it up, but it, you know, it doesn't get any, it stays about the same. It, it doesn't really um, change. And uh, so this continual cycle... Life under the sun. It's like the cycles of nature. It's kind of meaningless repetition and and vanity. Where is it? Well, let's look at these things from the believer's point of view again, the hopeful point of view. For the believer, the cycles of nature, instead of illustrating the vanity of life, do the very opposite. Uh, The cycles reveal the God who established them. God set them in motion. Uh, God established them so that uh, we can count on these things. In fact, it's, it's the, the, the orderly nature of God's universe makes science itself possible because we, we can know when we, uh, we, we do experiments and we do things, we, this will happen like this because, because we can count on things acting in a certain way. God has established certain rules and laws. Um, people call them the laws of nature. I would call them the laws of God and his providence. But um, uh, Phil Riken writes that the very repetition we see in nature is a testimony to the goodness of God, showing the constancy of our creator. Uh, so the movements of the sun, you know, meaningless repetition, and yet from a divine perspective, which we read in Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 19 already, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber and rejoicing like a strong man to run its race. Uh, so instead of Solomon's uh, caricature of the sun just panting and, and almost being out of breath, uh, the believer does not see it that way. The believer says this sun, the mighty sun is declaring the glory of God. And it's running, it's not weary and out of breath, it's a strong man running a victorious race because God has, has uh, put it there and uh, it's incredible to think of the power. And uh, I was sitting in the, on my back porch yesterday evening, later in the afternoon, and just looking at all the green grass and trees and plants everywhere around. It, this wouldn't be here if there was no sun. And uh, just how incredible uh, it is. That, uh, that, that, that God has ordered things in this way. Likewise, uh, the winds uh, blow at his command, do they not? In John 3.8, Jesus uses the wind as uh, an analogy for the work of the Spirit. But he says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. And so, uh, to us, the wind appears to be random and meaningless. We, we can't control it. We, we can hardly even predict it. And yet it's always under God's control. And it's the same with those who are born of the Spirit. Uh, like the wind, it may seem random. Well, this person becomes a Christian, but this one over here does not. Uh, how do we make any sense of that? Well, uh, God has a hidden purpose. Uh, he chooses one and, and passes over another. Uh, appears to be random, but it's not. God has a plan and a purpose. And, uh, and so, too, think of the providence of God. The naturalistic worldview is blind to providence. Uh, things just happen. And that's it. 
Um, maybe there's a scientific explanation, but uh, there, we certainly can't bring God into the, into the explanation. But the Bible tells us that God controls every wind that blows. In Psalm 107, verse 25, where he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. So God foreordains the cycles of nature, and he's certainly free to override them and, and to change them however and whenever he wills. The unbeliever may only see vanity in these things, but the perspective of the believer is different. We see that God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Uh, so we, we observe the cycles of nature, and, and, and we also observe the interruptions, the violent interruptions in those cycles. And, and those who believe ought to marvel at the works of the Lord in creation and in providence, as well as in the new creation uh, that he brings. African-American scientist George Washington Carver said this, he said, I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every day, every hour, and every moment of our lives, if we will only tune in and remain so. Uh, so the phrase, the sun also rises, speaks of monotony of life without God, speaks of vanity, but for the believer, it reminds us that the mercies of God, each time we see the sunrise, we say, oh, new mercies are coming. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Uh, so that's the difference. So moving on, lastly, in this passage, we see the vanity of history. Now, the second half of verse 8 uh, is not directly connected with history. But what it says is the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There are different ways to translate the Hebrew there, but this is the New King James. And, you know, one popular paraphrase put it this way. Everything's boring, utterly boring. No one can find any meaning in it. Boring to the eye, boring to the ear. <laughs> and uh, doesn't that kind of describe our generation? We have more things to entertain us, to occupy us than ever before, and yet people seem to be more bored than ever. How can we be so bored? With all the new technology, all there's just new seems to be new stuff all around us. Uh, but we're not satisfied with life as it is. Uh, Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, notes that like the ocean, our senses are fed and fed but never filled. And like the wheel of nature, our history is always turning back on itself and failing of its promise. The journey goes on, but we never arrive. And that leads us to verse 9. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Well, of course, there's new technology. There, there are new inventions, uh, scientific and medical discoveries. But people stay the same. Uh, we are sinful at heart. We're just uh, more educated sinners than we used to be. Uh, uh, we have, we're, and the technology that we have, of course, enables us to uh, 
sin in, in, in ways that have greater consequences. Uh, I haven't seen the movie Oppenheimer, but we have an example of technology and what can come of it if used um, for evil. And we think about uh, the, the world and, and how much things change, and yet they stay the same. People are the same. We're, we're all still very self-centered, hateful, and proud. We are wicked and corrupt from the heart. Verse 10 says, Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new? It's already been in ancient times before. So it is interesting how many discoveries, uh, things that people uh, you know, think are new, they find out it was done in ancient Egypt or something like that. Uh, so there's nothing really new. There's no new philosophy any, anymore or, or, or heresy. You know, any new cult that comes around, they're just propagating very likely a, a, a repeat of an old heresy. Generation after generation, mankind acts in the same vain ways, does the same vain things. Someone said that time has changed much, but it hasn't changed man himself. And that's why the scriptures, you see, are always relevant. A lot of people say, well, you know, the scriptures are old. They're not relevant to us today. And so churches today, they, they try to be relevant. Let's, we've got to make the scriptures relevant. But the Bible is relevant because it speaks to the same needs that mankind has always had. The need for salvation, forgiveness, and change. And, and God himself is the one, the only one who can bring these things about. Well, left to ourselves, of course, uh, we will stay as we are, and that is enslaved to sin. Uh, we can't change our own nature. Now, Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you uh, may do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, if you are a slave to sin, you're only going to sin. You can't change your nature. The good news is, is that the unchanging God is in the business of changing hearts and making things new. Is there anything new under the sun? There is. Isaiah 43:19 says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And Isaiah was looking ahead and in many other places in Isaiah, we find these, these prophecies of the incarnation of the coming Messiah who would usher in a new covenant. Being the eternal God, the Son of God, would enter into time and space, live, enter our humanity, and live the perfect life that we fell short of living. And then in the likeness of sinful flesh, he became a curse. He became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And by his death and resurrection, he, he ushered in eternal redemption uh, for those who believe. And, and when he ascended into heaven, he, uh, along with the Father, sent the Holy Spirit to call and regenerate those whom the Father had chosen. So Jesus himself 
was crucified and buried, but he received new life when he rose from the dead. And he now is the life giver. He gives life to those who call upon his name. Everyone who receives Christ by faith receives life. They become a new creation. Is there anything new under the sun? No, but there is under the Son of God. In Revelation 21, 5, Jesus says, I Behold, I make all things new. He makes people new. Do you need to be born again? Do you need to be made new? He can do that. He makes people new. And one day he will make all creation new. There's a new heavens and a new earth that he will create Have you escaped the vanity of the repetitive cycles of life by being made a new creation in God and being given that hope of the new heavens and the new earth? Solomon ends this section in verse 11. He says, There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. And, and of course, there are some exceptions. We do. We remember what Solomon said because it's recorded in Scripture. But our lives will largely be forgotten. And yet, speaking of history generally, what I think he's saying is that people don't remember the past and they don't learn from it. And that's one of the reasons why history keeps repeating itself because we never learn its lessons. Why else would a new generation lean towards socialism or communism, I might add? But... We can avoid this fatal error of forgetting the past and not learning from it. How? The only way to do that is by renewing our minds with the Word of God. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good and acceptable, the perfect will of God. So it's only the teaching of the Word of God applied to our lives, applied to our thinking, our worldview first, our belief system, and then that word guiding how we actually live our lives in this world that would be vain if it weren't for God, uh, only that can, can, can bring salvation to our souls, uh, can save and renew our lives, can save and renew our families, can even save generations and nations if they turn from sin and, and begin to, to know Christ and study his word. There's no other way uh, to avoid the pitfalls of this vain merry-go-round under the sun. So our worldviews must be shaped by the word of God. And I hope you see the contrast. Let's, let's do our best as we look at life, as we look at the cycles of life, as we go about our another week. Another week has come around. Another Monday's coming around. Wow, that's never happened before, has it? Yeah, it's 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 our routine. It's it, and it can get to be a rut sometimes. But let's look at these things and let's try to see them from a faith perspective, from a biblical worldview. But in conclusion, let's say this: If everything under the sun is vanity, then our only hope must be above the sun. Where God reigns. Isn't that what Paul said in Colossians 3? Set your mind on things above, not on things that are of the earth. That's where that's vanity. Where Christ is now hidden with, this, with, with God. That's where we need to set our minds. 
So our hope must be in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone makes new and who alone can rescue you and uh, take you off of this merry-go-round of a vain world. Life has meaning and satisfaction for those who know and trust in Jesus. Is your trust in Him today? Is your trust beginning to weaken? Let God strengthen your faith because life alone, life has meaning only for those who are in Christ, who are being taught by His Word, and who abide in His Word. Their whole perspective changes on life. And you know what? If you have that perspective, you're going to be very different from those in the world, aren't you? That's where we have the opportunity. As Peter said, you know, he says, you know, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. To have a hopeful worldview is, is only possible for Christians. And so the more hopeful we are, the more opportunities I think we'll have uh, to, uh, to share where that hope comes from. Uh, the son of the living God. Let's pray together. I am very thankful, Lord.